0: While I was on my trip to Asia last summer, sitting on an airplane, flying across the Pacific Ocean, Dick Hillis, my traveling companion, gave me an article from a recent Newsweek magazine to read about guerrilla warfare in the Philippines, one of the countries we'd be visiting. I'd like to read a few paragraphs of that article for you. In a region swarming with government patrols, there were 16 of us, One grizzled veteran, ten young men scarcely past their teens, three younger women, a photographer, and me. We had been holed up for the daylight hours in a low concrete shed on a grassy hummock surrounded by waterlogged rice paddies. As night fell, we prepared to break camp. We ate some scrawny chicken, a single can of pickled squid, and mounds of boiled rice. The guerrillas stowed their belongings in backpacks, shouldered an assortment of light weapons, and filed out the door straight into an ambush. The first members of the group were no more than 20 feet from the shed when a hand grenade arched out of a nearby irrigation ditch and exploded with an orange-red flash. Seven guerrillas were hit by shrapnel. As they lay bleeding in the dark, they were raked by automatic rifle fire. The rest of the insurgents fanned out and shot round after round toward the ditch. After a 15 minute firefight, they were able to drag their wounded comrades back to the shed. Hours later, as one of the injured lay dazed and blood soaked on the bamboo floor of a peasant's hut, he said, The life of a gorilla is not easy. For the barefoot soldiers of the New People's Army, life is harsh indeed. The men and women who have taken up arms to overthrow the regime of President Ferdinand Marcos endure long stretches of crushing boredom in the backcountry's primitive burios and backwaters, interspersed with terrifying moments of danger. During my five days among them, I found most of the rank-and-file guerrillas to be young, poor, and lacking in advanced education, but they are highly motivated and superbly organized as I read this, the thought came to my mind, why is it that the communist guerrillas who are fighting only for what they feel would be a, a more just social and economic system have this kind of courageous dedication to their cause when we who are Christians, who are fighting for much more important things, things which are eternal, Often lack this kind of courage. And I asked myself, where are the examples of the Christians willing to give their all, willing to put their life on the line for our cause? Well, on my trip, I encountered dozens of examples. The first was Dick Hillis himself. In 1933, Dick was a young man, age 21, single, and went to China to be a missionary. He lived among the people as the people. The only white man in his county. They lived in crushing poverty. They had long cold winters with no heating available because firewood was too scarce. They only ate two meals a day because their food was uh, was uh, food supply was sparse. Their normal diet consisted of a porridge of water and flour mixed together in the morning and bread and water in the evening. This would be uh, spiced up a little bit by soybeans six weeks of the year and and uh, uh, sweet potatoes another six weeks, carrots during their season, and that's about it. After Dick had been there for three years, his wife, he got married. During their first year of marriage, his wife grew deathly ill, developed a high fever, and fell into a coma. But the nearest doctor was a hundred miles away by bicycle, he couldn't leave her alone, nor could he take her with him to the doctor. He had to sweat it out, trusting God to protect her life, which God did. Later, they were, their lives were threatened by the invading armies of Japan in 1941. and 48. they were captured by the Chinese communists and held captive for 18 months before they escaped. When they left, all of his children, the six children, had rickets. And Dick himself suffered permanent eye damage due to vitamin deficiencies. Now I asked myself, would I be willing to undergo such hardship and deprivation for the gospel? Well, there are many more such examples I encountered. I'll share at this point only one more. As you may know, India is a country which is closed to missionary activity. But the Navigators are doing a great work recruiting people from the Commonwealth countries, training them and sending them into India. Since India is a member of the British Commonwealth, then others with Commonwealth passports can go in and do whatever they want. They can minister, they can get jobs, uh, they can live without the restrictions that you or, you or I would have. The head of their work is a, a brilliant man named uh, John Ridgway. Ph.D. physicist from Australia. Ridgway had been told by Einstein's protege that his ideas were so good that if he developed them, he would soon be a multimillionaire. But John Ridgway gave this up to go live in poverty and deprivation in India. He took a job as a second-rate research physicist in a university, and he lives there in a single 8x8 room furnished only by a bed, a table, a hard chair, and a mosquito net. Now, why would people endure such suffering? Why would they give up millions of dollars in the comfort of a, of a beautiful place like Australia to live in, to go to, to India to live amongst the impoverished millions in poverty himself? Well, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we will find instructions from the Apostle Paul that would lead us to be willing to live a life of courageous dedication. A life of total commitment to our cause, the cause of Jesus Christ. We will have such a commitment if we understand, according to what Paul says here, we have a, develop a proper understanding of God's method of operation, Secondly, a proper motivation. And thirdly, a proper perspective. First of all, let's look at verses 7 through 10 and see God's method of operation. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. We have a natural desire to avoid all suffering and pain and hardship. In spite of the fact that the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not think it a uh, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you as if some strange thing were happening to you. He says suffering is a part and parcel of the Christian life. It's the normal thing. Now Paul was laboring under opposition that was present in Corinth. We read elsewhere in these, in the epistle that there were false teachers who had come into the city. They were claiming that they were apostles of Jesus Christ who were better than Paul. And they were bringing with them a perverted Judaistic gospel. And one of the things they were saying is that you shouldn't trust Paul because he doesn't look like an apostle. He's not very attractive. As a matter of fact, he's ugly and has a big nose and bow legs and uh, he just doesn't look like a, a super person. In addition to that, he's not a very good speaker, doesn't have power in his speech like we do, and he's always in trouble. Certainly he doesn't look like somebody upon whom God has set his seal of approval and has blessed his life. This is a normal worldly method of of outlook. When I graduated from seminary, I have an aunt who's not a Christian who advised me to go out and buy a lot of expensive clothing because she said if you look successful, you can be successful. If you have expensive clothing, then people will think you're successful and therefore they'll trust you and your ministry will prosper. Well, that's the world's way, but it's not God's way. Paul says in, in these earlier chapters that God has entrusted to him the ministry of the gospel, and that his ministry is far superior to that of these false Judaistic apostles. The ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of the new covenant, which he's presenting to these people, is uh, far more excellent, surpasses in glory the ministry of the law of Moses, which was temporary passing away, which these people are trying to repeat. But Paul says, uh, in spite of the greatness, it's God's method of operation to entrust this ministry to weak human beings. He says, for we have this treasure, the treasure of this kind of gospel, powerful gospel ministry in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. It's as if we had a a collection of 50 gold cougar ants, and we placed them in a, an old clay pot made in Tijuana that we picked up for 10 cents at the Goodwill store the greatness of the, uh, of the treasure is set in contrast to the vessel that carries it and God likes to choose normal ordinary vessels like us to show his power Paul says in chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 For we do not want you to be aware to be unaware brethren of our affliction which came to us in Asia that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life indeed we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead so God in part uses the weak humanity, always in trouble, in uh, circumstances of suffering, so that we don't trust in ourselves but in him. Furthermore, he says in chapter 4 that he wants to show that the greatness of the power belongs to him and not to us. So though we're tempted to, we shouldn't shrink back from suffering and hardship as Christians. If we let the world influence us, then we're going to begin thinking, that we should live a life of comfort and ease and luxury and if we're perverted enough in our perspective we might even think that God owes it to us to make our lives all smooth and easy And we forget that God wants to show his power through a weak humanity that's always in trouble look what Paul says about himself in verses 8 and 9 he says he's always in difficulty and yet in the midst of those God did not abandon him. He says that God doesn't tempt us beyond that which we're able. Able. He puts us in difficulties, but not beyond what we're able to put up with. He says we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed by the problems we encounter. We're perplexed, wondering, what in the world is happening to me? And why are these things happening? But we're not despairing because we know that God is in control. We know who is behind all of these events, working them in our lives to fulfill His plans. He says we're persecuted and Paul himself was run out uh, of town after town and yet not forsaken because we know that the God of the universe is with us in the midst of our suffering. We are struck down, he says, but not destroyed like a warrior who's in battle and who's shot with an arrow and yet not killed, is able to pull the arrow out of his arm and get up and fight again. Paul says we always encounter these difficulties. But if we realize that these difficulties and that suffering is part of God's method of operation, then we won't shrink back from it. We won't try to avoid suffering at all costs. We'll realize that that's part and parcel of the normal Christian life and of having a successful ministry. Paul says in verse 10, we're always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus. Because we're identified with Jesus Christ, we are afflicted by his opponents, we are put in situations of death day after day, and yet we put up with this, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Now, we don't normally like suffering. I don't. And how is it that we can endure this kind of uh, treatment from God, this method of operation, without falling prey to self-pity and wanting to run away from the difficulties that beset us? We can do so by having the proper motivation, which Paul next describes in the following verses. Let's look at starting in verse 11. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore also we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Paul says we endure suffering because we are motivated for your sakes and through you ultimately to God's glory. He says in verse 10, We are always carrying in the body the dying of Jesus. We are willingly submitting ourselves to this because we know what it's going to do for you. We do it that the life of Jesus might be manifested through us to you. We don't run away from the difficulties. We hang in there tough that God might show his strength in us in the midst of our problems and that through that the gospel might come to you that you might experience new life. In verse 11, he indicates that he sees that that God is behind all this. He switches to a passive voice and says basically the same thing. He says, We who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. And notice the purpose. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now, who's delivering Paul over to death for Jesus' sake? Well, it's not his opponents who are persecuting him. They're delivering him over to death that he might stop preaching about Jesus, that he might give up his ministry and quit. But Paul sees behind them the plan of the sovereign God who himself is causing these things to happen in order that the life of Jesus might be manifested in ways that wouldn't be otherwise. So Paul concludes, verse 12, By saying, death works in us, but life in you. Summarizes what he's been saying. We realize that we're always getting beat up. But we're motivated to hang in there. Because we know as a result, you are going to come to faith and grow in that faith. In verse 13, he summarizes by quoting a psalm. A psalm of praise for deliverance from death. And he says, just as the psalmist, we have the same spirit of faith as him, who said, I believe, therefore I speak. We also believe, therefore we speak. Paul says, nothing is going to stop us. We are going to continue our ministry, even if they ridicule us, they slander us, if they laugh at us and call us religious fanatics and kooks, if they beat us up, if they ostracize us socially, if they quit uh, trading at our businesses, we're going to hang in there. Because we believe we're going to continue to speak. And in verse 14, he elaborates on his reason for doing so, his basis of confidence. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. We know that the worst they can do to us is to kill us. And even if they kill us, we're going to be resurrected. Be brought back to life. We'll, we'll go to heaven and be before God. But notice those important last two words of verse 14. With you. We persevere because we know that if we persevere, you are going to be there. Our ministry is going to have an effect in your lives. And you're going to join us there in glory for all of eternity. Now, I was in Indonesia, I heard the remarkable story a man named James Hartano, who was at the conference, pastor's conference at which I participated, he developed a burden for the Dayak people. Now, this is the kind of burden that's a little bit dangerous to develop because the Dayaks are cannibals. And he preached to his church, we need to reach out to these people. Well, nobody responded, nobody responded, and finally a young woman responded, and uh, sorry to say, guys, it's usually the women who are more courageous than us. But she went out to preach the gospel to this this uh, group of cannibals. Well, her father kept thinking about his his uh, helpless young daughter out there amidst these cannibals. So one Sunday, he came to Hurtano with a big knife in hand, stuck it in his belly, and said, You go get my daughter or I'm going to kill you. Well, Hurtano naturally concluded that he'd received the call of God to retrieve the daughter, hopped on his motor scooter, and went out there. On his way, he met a A white man who's a missionary who's also going in that direction and he joined him on his motor scooter after several miles of travel they went around a bend and they were confronted by a group of 500 Dayak warriors with war spears in hand they pulled them off of their scooters they surrounded each of them and Hartano said that one stuck a spear in his belly another in his back and one started playing with them, rubbing his spear back and forth across his neck until blood started spurting out. Meanwhile, the others were arguing, which one should we kill first? Well, most of them were saying we should kill the white man first because we've never eaten white meat and we've never drunk white white man's blood because they like to drink the blood of their victims. Well, Artano, as you and I would do, prayed at that point. And in a, a, a last-minute uh, desperate effort, he shouted out to them, Go ahead and kill me! But know if you do so that you will be anti-religious and against the Constitution of Indonesia. Well, that didn't sound like a very good threat to, to us. But this was just a few years after the Communists attempted a coup in Indonesia. They had a big hit list of all the government, military leaders, all the Christian pastors, and they were going to exterminate all these people. They did indeed kill thousands. And they were shown to be uh, what they were, uh, brutal, ruthless people. And so there's a great backlash against the communists. And the word anti-religious was a buzzword that meant communist. Well, these dyak cannibals, in spite of living in the jungle, knew all about this. They backed off, and they, they thought, we don't want to be called communists. So they lifted the two men on their shoulders and shouted, Long live the pastor! and then one by one they came up and apologized personally to each of these men well Hurtano went on and got the young woman took her back to the church but he kept preaching we need to reach these cannibal people the Dayaks. now I'm sure that if I had been there I would have realized the great danger that would be involved in going to them and yet he maintained his preaching his church was completely unresponsive nobody would go and finally he said well I'll go will you support me Church people said, no, we don't care for them. We have our own problems to take care of. We don't want to take on the burden of supporting a ministry to a bunch of cannibals. And so, in frustration, he quit his pastorate, not knowing where the money was going to come from to live on. And he set out to to minister to these dyaks. Some other Christians found out and, and supported him. But he shared at the conference that through his ministry, 15,000 dyaks have come to know Jesus Christ from that group in his neighborhood. He exemplified exactly what Paul says here. We are courageous. We speak in spite of the dangers, knowing that Jesus Christ is going to raise us from the dead and knowing that because of our ministry, you will be there in glory with us. And then he further summarizes his motivation in verse 15. For all things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Now, I'm afraid that if we wrote this and if we were honest, many of us would have to say, All things are for our sakes. Yes, I'll minister when it's convenient. Yes, I'll extend myself when it's fulfilling and and I gain recognition and it's fun. But if it's a price to pay, well, count me out. But Paul says our motivation is for you. All things are for your, your sake. And then beyond his motivation for people, there's the motivation for God. We minister for your sake that grace may abound to more and more people. More may come to know Jesus Christ and their lives might be brought into his service, and thanksgiving might increase to the glory of God. You'll have more people who are thanking and worshiping and praising God. And so our motivation is to serve other people, and through that, to serve God and bring him glory. When I was in Indonesia, I was talking with Greg Grippentrog, who was a missionary I was staying with. He'd been one of my classmates in seminary. And Greg said, Steve, I don't expect to spend my whole life in Indonesia. And I questioned, why not? Because obviously it's a very fruitful ministry. And he said, that's the problem. The ministry is so fruitful and it's being so effective that I fully expect there to be a backlash at some point. They've developed a seminary. It's two years old. They have 100 students. And so far, their average is 20 baptized converts per student per year out of people who are animists and, and nominal Muslims in the, in the villages surrounding the area. He said, I expect there to be a backlash, and I expect one night to be awakened with the message that one of my students has been killed and with the message that I have two weeks to leave the country, never to return. Why to do some thinking? Would I be willing to be one of those students to go out into the villages and to risk my life for the sake of the gospel? One of his students had already been hit by a stone in one of the uh, villages on a preaching mission. And as I questioned, Would I be willing to give my life for the sake of the gospel? I realized that I should really be asking that question in a different way. Would I be willing to deny somebody else the possibility of eternal life to protect my physical life? And then another question came to my mind. Could I put my family through this kind of hardship? One of the missionaries there shared that they had lost a baby because of the poor medical care. The baby was born prematurely. The doctor had never checked the mother internally to find she was dilated and needed to be confined to bed. Their preemie facilities were inadequate to save the life and the baby was born, and so they lost the baby. Would I be willing to put my wife through that kind of experience for the sake of people in Indonesia? But I realized again I needed to ask the question in a, in a different way. Would I be willing to deny those people the possibility of eternal life simply to protect the physical life even of my family? Then a third question came to my mind. The thought of personal martyrdom is not so horrible to me. In spite of how wonderful all you people are, I know that Scripture says to die is to gain. I'd go and be with the Lord. But the thought of leaving my wife a widow my children orphans is a crushing burden to me. And yet I saw even that question I needed to ask differently. Would I be willing to deny these people the possibility of eternal life because I could not entrust my family's care to a loving Heavenly Father? And being there and asking those questions did something for me. And this, I taught this very passage to a group of their seminary students while I was there. I saw, no, I needed to, to have the courageous kind of commitment that James Hartano exemplified, or the Apostle Paul, or Dick Hillis. What's well, easy sometimes to screw up enough courage where we could have that kind of commitment momentarily but how do we maintain it? How do we keep going? And How do we have a life full of that kind of, of bravery? Well, Paul tells us in the next verses when he tells us of the kind of perspective that we need to have. Verses 16 to 18. Therefore do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He says we don't lose heart. We don't give up our ministry in spite of the hardships. In spite of the fact that our outer body is wasting away, Paul says, I recognize I'm not going to live as long as I would have. All these beatings and the uh, difficulties take their toll upon a person's health. Our outer body is wasting away. And yet, our inner man is being renewed day by day. Now, I personally believe it's good to have exercise. It's good to eat properly so that we can avoid uh, unnecessary physical maladies and uh, an unnecessary premature death. And yet, Paul indicates it's much more important that we concentrate on the growth of our inner man. Our inner man is renewed day by day, and we know more and more every day the experience of walking with Jesus Christ and his transforming power in the midst of our lives. And he says in verses 17 to 18, the kind of perspective that helps him in this. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now what does he mean by a light affliction? Let's look at chapter 11 and see verses 23 to 28. Here we see Paul interacting directly with the problem of these false apostles who've been boasting about themselves, and Paul reluctantly uh, shows that the contrast between him and them. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I don't want to have to brag. I am more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews thirty-nine lashes. They determined that 40 lashes would kill you. So they gave him 39 to bring him to the point of death and uh, leave him alive. Three times I was beaten with rods. That was the Roman means of, uh, of beating. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Now for us, Slight momentary affliction is having a flat tire or getting an unexpected bill. But for Paul, these things were slight momentary affliction. Well, how could he call them slight? Only in comparison to the surpassing weight of glory that lay ahead for him. I have a friend who uh, enjoys running in marathons. I don't know how you are, but for me, the thought of running for 26 miles without stopping is torturous. And yet, if one of you were to offer me a million dollars to run in a marathon just to finish, I am very confident that I could endure the pain of those few hours to finish that race. Without the reward ahead of me, that pain would be intolerable. With the reward, the pain would seem slight and momentary. I can put up with this. And Paul is saying the same thing. Yes, there's pain and suffering, what I've endured. But it's it's hardly worth speaking of compared with the surpassing weight of glory that lies beyond. And notice the important word in verse 17, producing. These afflictions are actually producing the reward. The New Testament indicates that heaven will not be the same for each of us. It will not necessarily be for any one of us all that it could be. We're told here that the suffering we endure for Jesus Christ actually produces part of our eternal reward. And as Paul maintains this perspective, that he will be amply rewarded for all that he endures for the sake of Christ right now. He is ready to suffer anything. But notice in verse 18 that this reward is not automatic. He says it happens while we look not at the things which are seen. We could translate this because we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. Only as we walk in faith, depending upon the power of Jesus Christ, seeing things from the faith perspective, knowing that God will manifest His glory and His power through us in the midst of suffering as we endure whatever we're called upon to endure for His sake. And as we submit in that way to Him, then our suffering will be producing this eternal weight of glory. The world right now needs Christians with courage, with dedication to our cause, the cause of serving Jesus Christ. And we can do so as we see God's method of operation. Suffering is not some abnormal thing that we should run away from. But it's part of the life of serving God. As we have a proper motivation and our lives are turned from mere selfishness to serving other people and through them serving God. And as we have this eternal perspective knowing that all that we do now for Him will be amply rewarded, then we're able to endure. Now, some of us, God may be uh, calling into foreign missionary service under difficult conditions, like I've described. We need to count the cost, but realize that that no condition of suffering is such that we should shy away from the, the ministry that God brings our way. Others will go Others of us might go to serve God as a tent maker, missionary. In countries where traditional missionaries are not allowed, may go as an engineer or an agriculturalist or a teacher. I know that the governments of Nigeria and Liberia right now have asked Sudan Interior Mission to provide them with Bible teachers for their public schools. They see that religion is valuable and, and religious education in schools is mandatory. And they want Christians from America and Britain and other places to come over there and teach Bible, evangelize the students, counsel them, disciple them, and all sorts of stuff, and they'll foot the bill. I know nurses are needed in Somalia right now to work with the refugee uh, camps there. Others of us are called, most of us, will be called to, to serve and to suffer right here. To not let the price of feeling awkward and reaching out to a relationship, to a neighbor, deter us from a loving outreach, to not let the, the pain of being laughed at on the job keep us from speaking up when the time is right. We need to wipe out of our mind the ideal that some of us have. That the ideal life is to let God be my psychologist, to heal my inner hurts, and then live a life of self-indulgence. And that the ideal Christian life is to have a a cabin in the the mountains and to spend all my time snowmobiling and hunting and sewing and reading and all the things I want to do. Or erase from our mind the ideal that, that we should have a nice, quiet life, uncluttered, unhassled, uh, without having to, to busy ourselves with Christian involvements and activities and meetings. Now, we need to protect our, our lives and not overdo it. We need to have a strong family life, and yet God has called us to serve. He's looking for Christians who will have the courage of some of those communist guerrillas, the courage of the Apostle Paul, to serve him right where we are, To be sold out in dedication and commitment to our cause so that we can say of ourselves in truth, All things are for your sake. That the grace of God, uh, as the grace of God abounds to many, thanksgiving might increase to the glory of God. Well, this kind of life is difficult. It's too difficult for us to pull off by ourselves. We need the strength of God to maintain us and to empower us. Before I pray, you may have something that you want to pray to God, response to what we have heard from His Word. Father, we thank you for the challenge that you present before us. As we have studied this passage, many of us feel humbled, shamed, that we've been living lives characterized by self-indulgence instead of sacrificial service. We thank you, God, that you accept us as we are in spite of the way that we are, in spite of our weaknesses and faults, and that we can maintain our confidence before you through Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you would help us. Open our eyes of understanding that we might see the doors of opportunity around us, that we might be wise in serving you and serving the people of this world that you have placed before us. We ask for your power. We ask for great strengthening of our spirits. And we ask all this for the glory of Jesus Christ and through his name, amen.